0: quest to find eyewitnesses to Great Lakes maritime events launched with an interview I'd never thought possible. It was 1993, some 80 years after the Great Storm of 1913, and a newspaper search turned up a sailor who had been in the King of Storms. Ed Kenaby had recently suffered a stroke and his daughter didn't know what he could remember or what he could communicate. His memory of the tragic gale was perfect. But the 97-year-old's hearing required his daughter to repeat my questions by shouting into his ear.
1: Tell him the name of your ship.
0: The ship I
2: was on, H.B. Hoggood.
0: The H.B. Hoggood was a 424-foot steel freighter launched in 1902 in Lorain, Ohio. It was a far 150 feet shorter than the largest ships on the lakes, but still a contender when the winds of November turned nasty. The Hoggood had a relatively event-free sailing record, except that its captain vanished one afternoon while sailing on Lake Erie in the spring of 1905. Captain Thomas Ellis' body was picked up two days later and by his head injuries, it was theorized that his occasional fainting spells caused him to slip and he hit his head while going overboard. In 1913, a different captain skippered the Hawgood. Who was your captain? Your captain? What was your captain's name? I'm
2: not sure, but I think it was Captain May, M-A-Y, May. The first mate was Charles Davis.
0: Kanabi was a farm boy who grew up in Michigan's Thumb. He frequently watched ships drift by on Lake Huron, and soon signed aboard the Hawgood. Headed back north for a load of grain in northern Canada, the Hawgood was still on Lake Erie when the barometer started to fall. During the ship's transit up the Detroit River, the gale hit with initial fury on northern Lake Michigan. The storm was actually two different systems that converged on the Great Lakes. Arctic winds dropped the temperatures from the 50s to single digits as a low-pressure system moved in. Captains watched as their barometers plummeted, indicating stormy weather approaching. Southwest winds hit the northern lakes on Friday, November 7th. The steam tug James H. Martin sought shelter on St. Martin's Island, north of Green Bay, Wisconsin. They shared dinner on board their schooner barge called Plymouth when the winds started shifting to the northwest, exposing their hiding place. The Martin was an old tug that could barely pull the Plymouth when it was empty. They were bound for the Mackinaw Straits, where a massive load of cedar posts awaited their arrival. This trip was set to pay off over $8,000 owed by the tug's owners, McKinnon and Captain William Scott. The fight over this debt sent Scott to jail, so Chief Engineer McKinnon was forced to hire an unknown captain named Louis Setunsky. The lumber company asked U.S. Marshals to put a deputy on board to protect the ship and cargo from harm. Milwaukee headquarters assigned former Undersheriff Chris Keenan to go on the fateful trip. Keenan had his run-ins with the old tug and its engineer before. As the Undersheriff of Menominee County, he was ordered to go aboard and collect the female cook's undergarments in September of 1913. This bizarre request came after Engineer McKinnon requested the corset and stockings that he had given to Elizabeth Deback. She ultimately refused McKinnon's proposal for marriage and the engineer wanted his gifts back. Mr. Beck sued for the embarrassment and won $50. The jury felt so bad they also awarded $60 more for the gifts she ultimately returned. McKinnon reportedly gave them to the new cook of the Tug Martin. The new girlfriend, Margaret Olive, didn't know she had signed on as cook on an unseaworthy ship. But as the winds howled on St. Martin's Island, she figured she'd take her chances aboard the Tug rather than the old barge. The ships pulled out in an attempt to run through Poverty Island Passage when the tug started to take on water and lose steam pressure in the engine. Normally reading 110 pounds, the gauge struggled to point sixty. Lake Michigan was soaking what remained of the dry coal in the engine compartment and twice Captain Satunsky was thrown from the wheel. It took six hours to make three miles and a decision had to be made regarding their tow and the seven men aboard. At 7 a.m. Saturday, they approached Tiny Gull Island. Figuring the Plymouth had just been recocked and contained steel arches from a rebuild in Bay City, McKinnon and Satunsky decided to order the Plymouth to anchor. With enough sail for one mast and two brand new lifeboats, they figured this was their only option. The Martin blew three blasts on their horn to tell Captain Axel Larson to drop his 3,000-pound anchor. The winds were now raging at 60 miles per hour and it was too dangerous to take the crew and Marshal Keenan aboard the tug. With no radio they could only cut the line and sail away to the protection of the Garden Peninsula in Upper Michigan. 72 hours later they had the Martin pump dry and set course for Gull Island. To their horror the schooner was nowhere to be seen. Continuous searches by the tug and the cutter Tuscarora would be futile. A week later some details of what happened washed ashore across the lake to a remote shoreline north of Manistee. Marshal Christ Keenan was found wearing a life jacket, and a section of rope was found around his waist, which some mariners believed was used to tie him to the mast of the Plymouth. The flag at Menominee County was lowered to half-staff in his honor, and word of a bottled message came to his family. Written on a coal receipt for the Plymouth, the note was scribed by a fellow crewmate and was allegedly from Keenan. Dear wife and children. We were left up here by McKinnon, captain of the tug, James H. Martin, at anchor. He went away and never said goodbye or anything to us. Lost one man last night. We have been out in the storm 40 hours. Goodbye, dear ones. I might see you in heaven. Pray for me, Chris K. In a postscript, Keenan reminded his family that Hubel Lumber owed him $35 so they could collect it. He closed with, goodbye forever. Two other members of the crew would be recovered. Captain Axel Larson was found in December near Muskegon. 17-year-old John Johnson was found in Platte Bay, north of Frankfort, Michigan. Four others were never seen again. Just south of where the Plymouth disappeared was the burned remains of the first victim of the 1913 storm. At 3 a.m. Saturday morning, the Louisiana crashed ashore on Washington Island near where the Barge Halstead had beached. The crew was somewhat protected in Washington Harbor, but it was soon discovered that a fire was raging below decks. The crew abandoned the ship and just made it ashore when the Louisiana was engulfed and burned to the waterline. Only its engine remained. The crew waded through snowdrifts until they found a farmhouse and sheltered from a storm that was far from complete. On Lake Superior, the Keweenaw Peninsula of Michigan was being assaulted by high waves and winds. The turret chief was blown off course from Fort William, Ontario and ended up on a rocky remote shoreline in Michigan. Fifteen feet from shore, about six miles east of Copper Harbor, the crew used a ladder to abandon the ship when the ice threatened to tip the vessel over. Near the turret chief's destination of Fort William, the Lee Field was in trouble. This British-built tramp was spotted by the freighters Franz and Hamannik in distress near Angus Island. One captain said he saw the ship on the rocks just 14 miles from the safety of their port of call. The ship and its entire crew vanished. It's one of three ships that have yet to be located. A half-dozen ships were tossed on the beach at the east end of Superior. Whitefish Bay, famous for being the destination of safety for the Edmund Fitzgerald, was now a junkyard of ships. The J.T. Hutchinson was on the rocks, the Hartwell near the Iroquois lighthouse. The wooden steamer Major was abandoned by its crew about 30 miles north of Whitefish after they discovered a leak. The A.M. Byers took the crew off and left the derelict to the storm. Amazingly, the old wooden steamer survived. The G.G. Barnum towed it into port and demanded a rescue fee. The William Nottingham hit the rocks three miles north of Parisian Island. Exposed on all sides and with no radio to call for help, three men jumped into a lifeboat to row six miles to the mainland. They barely made it to the water when a wave flipped the boat and killed all three men. The rest of the crew were stranded until a barge came out to salvage the grain cargo. The revenue cutter Tuscarora made an early visit to the wreck site when a storm prompted a rescue from the Nottingham. The cutter pushed its nose into the shipwreck and took off all but four of the command crew. They broke their anchor chain and lost an anchor in the process. The lightering barge also had to be rescued when her moorings broke in the waves. The Nottingham was later salvaged, but the cargo of grain was dumped into Lake Superior. The Tuscarora picked up a temporary anchor in the Sioux and headed west on Superior. It visited the abandoned turret chief and later found the L.C. Waldo off Gull Island at the tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula. Locked in ice, they would realize that Lifesavers had only recently been there to rescue the crew. Those rescue missions would lead to the most gold medals ever given out for a single storm. A crew from Eagle Harbor braved 30 miles on the open lake to get to the stranded freighter. A second team left Portage near Houghton to run 90 miles to the wreck. Inside the Waldo, the crew had gathered in the tiny windlass room, building a fireplace out of the captain's bathtub. After 90 hours in the storm, they only had a can of tomatoes left, and they were eyeing their pet bulldog as supper when Lifesavers chipped their way into the ice ship. John Beck removed his boots, using his wool socks to grip the icy ship as he scrambled aboard. Two women wept with joy as the 24 survivors were divided amongst the rescue teams and headed for shore. Of 21 life-saving gold medals awarded in 1915, 17 were for the Waldo rescue. The wreck was removed and rebuilt, only to sink after a long career on its way to the scrapyard in Italy. One of the greatest mysteries of the storm of 1913 was the whereabouts of the steamer Henry B. Smith. Newspaper accounts of Captain Jimmy Owens' rush to get loaded at Marquette paint an ominous outcome. Frozen ore in the train cars had delayed departure Saturday and storm warnings prompted the loader to postpone the transfer. Dock crews say Captain Owen pushed them to chop the ice free and workers even started fires beneath the frozen cars to get it to move. High waves complicated the loading and Owen supposedly demanded the H.B. Smith lash to the north side of Dock No. 5 to prevent the storm from slowing his progress two-inch line snapped in the fury, and he reluctantly pulled away from the dock to wait until it calmed. Thinking the worst had passed, he took on the last of the oar on Sunday and pulled away from the dock without all of his hatches being secured for bad weather. A squall built as he left the harbor at 6.30 p.m., and captains aboard the Denmark, Frontenac, and Choctaw remarked their astonishment that he'd leave port in such a condition. Historians still argue today about his rush to leave Marquette. Headlines from an interview with his sister said he laughed at dangerous storms. Stories that he was late all season and feared for his job were countered with reports from the ship's owner that it wasn't true. Wreckage washing ashore east of Marquette soon proved his decision was fatal. Four oars marked Smith came ashore as well as a section of deck house and a pike pole. Eventually two bodies floated across the lake and were picked up. The only survivor was second mate James Burke who had left the Smith because of pneumonia. Captain Jimmy Owen was never found. Where did the Smith end up? Witnesses saw the ship turn west past the storm-tossed brake walls. Owen wasn't headed for the Sioux and he wasn't laughing at the storm as his sister suggested. He had realized his mistake and turned for the protection of the Keweenaw Peninsula. He made 32 miles, and his haste poured water into his middle hatches, and the smith sank beneath the waves off Big Bay, Michigan. That's where wreck hunters Jerry Eliason and Ken Merriman found the ship 100 years later.
3: Really, we were looking for that U-boat off of Newfoundland is what got us looking for other ways of looking for shipwrecks, and uh, Newfoundland's a long way away, so looking for them in data is a lot easier than getting out there, especially during the winter.
0: That was Jerry Eliason. He and his wife looked at government surveys in the ocean and lakes and realized several metallic anomalies in Lake Superior lined up with known shipwrecks off Whitefish Point. Then there was a big 500-foot blip north of Marquette.
3: It had a a good magnetic signature in a relatively quiet area. yeah, I guess it was it was that you know I guess I believed in what Jerry was doing with the with the magnetic stuff and yeah there was a chance it could have been another ship or it could have been a, a, a underwater mountain and we did find some underwater mountains and and some things like that so you know maybe maybe my faith was overdone but but it worked.
0: Ken Merriman knew they had to take a boat out there to survey this remote area of Michigan.
3: We got this sounding, you know. And it was like the first or second pass with the side scan, you know, we hit it. It was like 400 feet from the actual mark on the chart. And it, it showed like, a, you know, a, a, a rise on the one end and a rise on the other end. And we said, well, it looks like a ship, but there's nothing in the middle, you know. And, and I said, well, yeah, but, you know, you never really know till we look at it what you're seeing. I said, it could be just broken in the middle.
0: As deep as the Edmund Fitzgerald, it was beyond their capabilities as deep water divers, so they put a camera on a line.
3: Well, it took us like half a dozen passes to, you know, and you gotta imagine, you're trailing a camera 500 foot below you, and it's, you know, you go up, you make a turn, you gotta let the camera drop, and then you drift across it. You really don't know where the camera is relative to you.
0: It didn't take long before the camera captured the name on the stern, confirming the long lost Henry B. Smith had been found.
3: Seeing this one upright on the bottom with its mast standing and basically totally intact, yeah, that's about as good as it gets.
0: Ken says the only thing better is to find the other 1913 ship still missing on Lake Superior, and they're trying.
3: You know, we were out looking for the Smith and I was looking at the history and saying, well, geez, Jared, the leaf field was another victim of the 1913 storm and I've hunted for that. Boy, would I love to find that. It's like, what a great story that would be if we could find both of them.
0: There is a shipwreck hunter with two 1913 ship discoveries. Dave Trotter and his team have scoured Lake Huron for shipwrecks over the years. He discovered the John McGeehan off Port Hope, Michigan in 1985 and then announced the Hydrus had been found in July of 2015. Fleetmate Argus had been found near the same area in 1972 by Dick Race. Each are in water too deep for sport divers. Each were lost with their entire crew with no survivors to say what happened in the storm. But there was an eyewitness to four ships that were lost, perhaps the last person to ever see the ships underway. His name, Ed Kenabi, wheelsman on the HB Hawgood.
3: Tell the date of the storm on
2: a s- Sunday morning.
0: That's
2: a long time ago. Coming through port, and first says to me, says, "See that ship?" He said, "That's the Regina, a Canadian ship." I said, "Looks like we're going to have." Come
0: Regina had left Sarnia at 5.30 November 9th, making steam for Harbor Beach. Loaded with general merchandise like tar, scotch, barbed wire, silverware, and hundreds of bales of hay, Regina was scheduled to visit several small ports before the winter freeze. That Arctic front pushed through the Ohio Valley Sunday morning, weakening as it hit Lake Huron. A more powerful storm from Virginia raced into the low pressure, loaded with moisture from the Atlantic Ocean. Storm warnings were raised, and snow began to fall. Winds raged at 60 miles per hour and held for 16 hours straight. Kanabi fought to keep the Hogood on course up Michigan's coast.
2: The wind was quite strong, and every few minutes, there'd be a gust of wind come up stronger than the one before. But it never ceases, stayed right there until the next gust of wind come up, still stronger.
0: Peering through the frozen windows of the pilot house, Kanabi could make out an ocean freighter making its way through the waves.
2: On the way up, look to the east, there was another little boat there. don't know what it was, but later somebody says that was a wax Ford We went on and off, and the seas out of Faginaw Bay looked like mounds. Oh, uh, am serious strong. By the time we got to Harrow Beach, it was really a blown. We went on further about Port Hope and the captain called down. He says Get pretty strong, got it, turn around, go back. So, out of port, turned around and headed south.
0: Turning around in the gale was the most dangerous part. Iced up and with waves crashing at their side, they started back down to the safety of the St. Clair River. Ed was sure he'd see the Regina on the way to Port Huron.
2: On the way back, going south, I looked to the east, and I didn't see that little boat anymore. It must have tipped over and sank. I think it is headed for Godrich, but it never got there.
0: The fate of the Regina soon became apparent as the Canadian coast became littered with the ship's general cargo. Near Port Frank, some 30 miles from where the freighter left Sarnia, a lifeboat was found on its side with two frozen sailors aboard. In all, ten crewmen would be found on the beach. Wheelsman Walter McGinnis was identified by his diary and money order receipts to his mom who lived near Owen Sound. He had sent $400 home to her over the shipping season. Regina's captain would be found that next year with his diary still intact. Loading hay... Clouds and wind was his last entry, November 7th.
2: So about White Rock, it started to snow. And oh, it snowed. What a blizzard. Couldn't see nothing. So we kept on going. And I looked up ahead. Here comes the boat. Oh, that crazy man coming out into a storm like this about a 90 mile gale. How much stronger? I don't know.
0: The Hoggoods captain and wheelsman were the last to see that ship afloat, the Charles S. Price. It flipped over and was found floating eight miles north of Port Huron. Photographs of the overturned freighter made front pages around the country, symbolizing this killer storm. Dubbed the mystery ship, newspapers clamored to find divers who would be the first to discover the name on the derelict. Meanwhile, half of the Price's crew floated ashore, and the ship's assistant engineer was announced alive and well in Ohio. Milton Smith had a bad dream about his family and took it as an omen, leaving the Price as it loaded coal. He was now the sole survivor of his crew and he was asked to come to Port Franks to identify the bodies. Engineer Smith was puzzled to find his boss, John Groundwater, among the lost of the Regina. He was told that Groundwater had a Regina life belt around his shoulders. Smith assured the coroner that John was the chief engineer on the Price. Newspapers conjured all kinds of stories from this. They quoted experts who believed the ships collided or that the Regina tried to rescue Price sailors. This mystery would remain even after diver William Baker announced the ship was the price, and there was no evidence of collision on the underwater hulk. Back in the storm, Kanabi was about to witness another of Lake Huron's victims.
2: I looked up ahead again. Here comes another one. That was the Isaac M. Scott headed into the storm, but it never came back.
0: Captain May recalled the encounter in a local newspaper. Quote, the Scott was met five or six miles north of Port Huron light with the seas breaking over her. I thought her captain was foolish to leave the river. I would have given my head to be in shelter.
2: We got by the, I have Scott and the captain called down. And he said, we got to turn around and Going deeper waters, Uh, that scared me, I got scared.
0: The Scot nearly made it to the top of Lake Huron, but the storm finally took the crew near Alpena. Its rudder was ripped from the ship as it dipped into 200 feet of water off Thunder Bay Island. The wreck was discovered by Kent Bell Richard in 1971. Kanabi's ride through the King of Storms was also about to end. Captain May believed his best bet was to avoid going aground. They sounded the depths around the ship and realized they were getting closer to the Canadian coastline. He opted for another dangerous turn in the raging winds.
2: He says, we're into the deeper waters. He says, and we're into the wind. That's when I really got scared, I thought to myself, oh, no, you don't, No there's long as a, a wisdom And I gave her a port you? And I threw the ship out of control A purpose.
1: Not
2: while I'm blue
1: will the hog good seek deep water the sirens of the lake huron wish to taste another crew our plates are bent by gouging ways as we face the crew nor'easter. i'll her at point her and that's all
0: It was now up to the waves which ploughed them closer and closer to Corsica Shoal and Point Edward.
2: Every time he the deeper waters, I'd throw the ship out of control. That made the captain change his mind. We we'll just laid there, pounded, and dragged anchors until we hit bottom, and I was at the wheel, and I think that's what saved the ship and the
0: crew. News accounts from Captain May never say anything about a disobeying wheelsman, but what is known is that the crew survived, and the ship had over $20,000 in damage. The season wasn't over, and the skipper asked Ed to take the wheel once again.
2: We went on the beach, laid there for a week, got pulled off. And I made two more trips after that. And later up in Buffalo. I was gonna quit. But I was the only woman on the ship. So the captain coaxed me to stay. Otherwise, he would have to lay up the boat. So I stayed and made two more trips after that.
0: Captain May believed this to be the worst storm in decades. I have been the master of boats for 20 years, and this is the worst storm I've ever encountered. Ed would sail on two more ships after the 1913 storm. He then joined the family elevator repair business. Just a few months after my interview, Ed Kanabe passed away. The ocean freighter Ed saw in Lake Huron was headed for the small town of Goderich in Ontario, Canada, loaded with 96,000 bushels of wheat for the mills of James Richardson and Sons. Locals recalled hearing the distress calls of what they believed to be the Wexford as it attempted to make port in the storm. Wexford wasn't the only ship trying to get home.
4: Obviously, when we got in the neighborhood of Goderich, Ontario, there was no possibility of getting in there at that time The waves were anywhere 35 to 40 feet high, the worst they had ever, ever, ever been. And the wind was up to 70, 80, and 90 miles an hour in spasms.
0: Ted Bullard was 11 years old in 1913, and his school had been canceled due to a flu epidemic in Ontario. His buddy's dad, Patrick McCarthy, was skipper on a lake freighter which was stuck up in Port Arthur because the grain loading system was frozen.
4: Tom's dad called his mother and said that if Tommy and Ted would like to come up where he was loading, um, he'd be glad to have us ride back on the ship with him.
0: After a train ride to the top of Lake Superior, Tom and Ted were ready for the slow cruise down the lake. What they didn't realize was they would be sailing into the King of Storms twice.
4: We started out from Fort William, Port Arthur at about 8 o'clock in the morning, light, unloaded, simply because the loading machinery had broken down and he couldn't afford to wait until they fixed it because possibility that the harbor might have been frozen up then and he'd be stuck there all winter. We got up there, got on board the ship. We got out of Fort William, Port Arthur, onto Lake Superior right smack into the storm. The night uh, before we left, the chef on board cooked the very delicious chicken dinner. And the next day, you can imagine what happened to the chicken dinner up in the rough seas.
0: Captain McCarthy was sailing into the same waves that sank the Lee Field in H.B. Smith. Passing nearly a half dozen stranded ships on Whitefish Bay, and turning around wasn't an option.
4: It was so rough that we did not dare take a chance to get back into the harbor for fear that we'd crash into the piers or whatever.
0: The steamer turret cape finally made it to the St. Mary's River and locked through the Sioux. Normally they'd just drop anchor in the river and wait the storm out, but there was no such luck.
4: When we finally got there, there was absolutely no place left to dock. So we were forced on out into Lake Huron, which turned out to be the roughest of the Great Lakes during that storm.
0: The turret cape was passing detour, the same route that several doomed ships had passed just minutes before. Even Canada's largest freighter loaded here and headed out into the storm, and the James Carruthers hasn't been seen since. Carruthers was barely a few months old, launched May 22, 1913 on Georgian Bay. Collingwood Shipbuilding boasted it was the sturdiest ship they had ever built, steel strengthened for storms on the lakes. It was hauling 375 train cars of wheat, an amazing 370,000 bushels, bound for the flour mills at Port Colburn on Lake Erie. Last seen loading coal at detour, The Carruthers entered Lake Huron around two in the morning, November 9th. The only other clues from the ship's final moments were around the wrists of the officers found. Captain William Wright washed ashore near Point Clark. His watch was frozen at 11.53. Chief Engineer Edward O'Dell's watch stopped at 1.15. A lifeboat and oars marked Carruthers was found further down the lake near Goderich. Why had the staunch Carruthers foundered when Ted Bullard's transport survived? Ted believed it was the rounded submarine shape of the turret cape that was key.
4: We kept on going, uh, primarily because of the construction of the ship, which was a uh, semi whaleback rounded type of hull. Uh, We kept on going because uh, to stop simply meant that we'd be blown ashore somewhere.
0: That meant sailing past their homes in Goderich and down to the bottom of Lake Huron.
4: So we kept on going down toward Sarnia. By the time we got into the Sarnia area, the storm was starting to subside. So we just simply circled out in uh, Lake Huron, uh, just staying away from shore. Uh, About two, possibly two and a half days later, we were able to get within shore uh, reach almost on the boat where we could yell at somebody, give them the phone number of both of our homes in Godridge and told them to call our folks and tell them that we were safe and that we were heading back toward Godridge. Uh, Obviously in those days, There was no ship to shore radios of any kind, so they knew nothing about
0: us. Ted and Tommy had hunkered down in the after cabin, too scared to look outside at the tempest that had taken eight ships and their crews. When the winds calmed, they turned for home.
4: I can't recall as of the moment, the day that we were able to pull into Godridge Harbor, but when we pulled in there, the town band was down there, I would say that most of the citizens of the town were there cheering and waving us in. And uh, if you think it wasn't uh, the greatest thing in the world to be able to find you were back home again, safe and sound.
0: Ted wasn't sure who was more happy, themselves or their parents, who had waited for days while bodies and wreckage came ashore at Godrich.
4: They had no idea what had happened to us and Uh, Very obviously, they were scared out of their wits.
0: Amazingly, Ted's encounter with the King of Storms wasn't his first brush with death. As a kid, he nearly drowned in a boating accident, and both nautical mishaps later led him to teach boating safety for the Coast Guard Reserve. Ted passed away in Saginaw in July of 1996. The aftermath of the great storm took years to rebuild. The human toll could never be replaced. 260 sailors lost, evidenced by the stockpile of mail at the floating post office in Detroit. 76 pieces from the ships lost with all hands, including mail for the chief of the price, John Groundwater. Reed Salvage reportedly made over a million dollars recovering the ships lost to the storm. Tugs pulled the Nicholas off the rocks at North Point and got it to Alpina in record time. The Matoa was raised from a reef near Point Bar. The Buckley was brought home after time on shore at Harbor Beach, and the Northern Queen and Matthew Andrews were pulled free from the beach at Port Franks. Tom Reid even pulled Ed Kanabi's boat the H.B. Hawgood free near Point Edward. Reid towed the Acadian off Sulphur Island and saved the Nottingham which had a quarter million dollar value. The Howard M. Hanna pummeled by the storm on Lake Huron was firmly on the rocks next to the Port Austin Lighthouse, which was built to keep ships away from the reef. The insurance company offered Tom Reed 75% of the Howard M. Hanna's value, but he instead asked to buy the ship and cargo for $13,000. He had it off the rocks by the time negotiations finished. But perhaps the most miraculous recovery would take place two years after the storm. After an exhaustive search, Lightship 82 was discovered in 62 feet of water, 13 miles southwest of Buffalo, New York. For over a year, maritime experts argued whether Captain Hugh Williams would have weighed anchor and left his post that lit the reef at Point Obino, Ontario. His wife, Mary, insisted he would never leave, and that's where his tiny lightship was found on May 12, 1914, lying buried on its side. Ironically, the only crewman found was located in Buffalo just three days earlier. Chief Engineer Charles Butler was found floating just a few blocks from his home. Within days of discovery by the USS surveyor, Detroit diver Jacob Baudry was feeling his way around the hall, smashing the locked doors to try to reach the crew. A thorough search of the bunk room and pilot house turned up nothing. Two salvers failed in attempts to raise the sunken lightship. It was Tom Reed and diver Louis Meyer who succeeded in getting chains around the Hulk. After pontoons did the heavy lifting, Meyer surfaced to enjoy some donuts and a much-needed bathroom break. He immediately broke out in blisters and cramped over with the bends. He had stayed below beyond the limit and surfaced too quickly. With no decompression chamber, Louis had to suffer and hope the damage wouldn't be permanent. Already the Lighthouse Service's deadliest disaster, Lightship 82 nearly claimed a seventh victim. Meyer eventually recovered in time to see the Lightship get towed to shallow water. The slow process of pumping out sand that filled the hulk began, and eventually the ship was brought into Buffalo, where the government dock was littered with debris from the ship. Among the wreckage was the ship's library, underwater for two years now, drying in the hot summer sun. The ship was rebuilt in Detroit and sailed the lakes again, reporting to Northern Lake Michigan on 11-foot shoal near Escanaba. It was taken out of service and President Roosevelt signed papers to transfer it to a VFW post in Boston in June of 1936. Newspapers say vandals burned it in the late 1940s. One of the most poignant stories of the lightship is that of the captain's wife searching for days aboard the tender crocus. Newspapers told of wreckage coming ashore, including a piece of wood that had a message scratched into it. Goodbye, Nellie, ship breaking up fast, Williams. Newspapers were quick to point out Williams' wife's name was Mary and that she had never been called Nellie. What was the mix up? The evening news later said a young boy tattled on his friend Eddie Clark, who supposedly carved the message as a hoax. Mary held fast in her belief in her husband. She put up a tombstone in their home cemetery of Onekama, Michigan. I visited the graveyard a few years ago to find her name is now on the stone as well. Lake Michigan's wreck of the Plymouth had repercussions into 1914. An inquiry into temporary Captain Louis Satonsky unveiled he wasn't licensed for the area he was sailing. He and McKinnon lost their licenses. McKinnon eventually did find a wife, marrying the cook that survived the storm with him. I have to admit being most intrigued by the Plymouth story. In the early 1960s, a diver named Art Reitz did an aerial survey of Poverty Island and told Scuba Diver magazine he had found the Plymouth. In the 1980s, several divers from Milwaukee claimed the same wreckage as Plymouth. This is highly unlikely left south of Poverty by a few miles with a 3,000-pound anchor down and only enough sail for one mast, they certainly didn't buck 60-mile-per-hour winds to sail to Poverty Island. I scoured the wreckage near the old lighthouse to find it's likely the old Erastus Corning or schooner Dick Summers, both lost in that exact location. Plymouth awaits discovery southeast of Gall Island in deep water, hidden for over 100 years. Wexford was discovered in Lake Huron in 2000, and unlike so many of the 1913 ships, it was upright and in less than 100 feet of water. It's an amazing dive exploring what's left of the hull. All of the cabins were destroyed by the gale, and the rudder is missing, all clues to the ship's final moments in the King of Storms. The discovery of the Regina in 1986 squelched several rumors that persisted since the earliest headlines. No evidence of collision existed, only a hole that one diver felt was caused when the ship hit bottom. Its anchors were deployed and the telegraph was at all stop, indicating the captain ordered abandoned ship off Lexington, Michigan. They may have made shore, but 16 hours of relentless winds pushed them across the lake to Canada. They never had a chance. Diver Wayne Brusate received a permit to salvage the cargo found on the bottom in 80 feet of water. Salvagers from Freedom Marine in Vancouver spent some $4,000 a day recovering mostly bottles, including those containing Heinz ketchup and 300 bottles of French champagne and White and McKay Scotch whiskey. Auctions failed to bring in the dollars needed to cover the recovery operations, Most went for less than $100 a bottle. One diver used the champagne to toast his wedding and was featured in People magazine. One strange fact was of the eating utensils recovered, there were only spoons. Not one knife or fork was found in the wreckage. Also missing was the reported $86,000 in gold coins, supposedly inside Regina's safe. Today the wreck continues to captivate divers as one of the most dived wrecks in Lake Huron. The sad reality is that explorers have been lost swimming inside the wreck, increasing the death total claimed when the ship was lost to the King of Storms. This hour-long look at the 1913 storm was made possible by a list of people who would be impossible to thank completely. Mary Jane Casparis is the daughter of Ed Kanabi who helped with his interview. Friends have copied news accounts from Menominee, Michigan, Collingwood, Ontario, Milwaukee, and Marquette. I was lucky to visit Goderich, Ontario with historian and TV anchor Eric Gila, and authors like Fred Stonehouse, Wes Oleszewski, and the late Paul Carroll and Jim Clary had reams of information to share. I've dove the 1913 wrecks Louisiana, Wexford, Price, and Regina, and talked with divers who explored the Smith, Argus, Hydrus, Scott, and Mageean. To all the boat captains and safety divers, I say a heartfelt thank you. To those who continue to search for the Plymouth, Leafield, and Carruthers, I wish you safe travels and good luck. Just a reminder that the interviews with survivors and divers are copyright airworthy productions and only found in audio form in this podcast. Written permission is required to rebroadcast them in any form. I'll leave you with a song written by David O'Norris and Dan Hall, based on my interview with wheelsman Ed Kenabi, This program is dedicated in his memory.
1: First there was the Charles Price which came out in the storm. Between the raging waves above, we saw her weather torn. They found her floating turtle, or the crew who paid their lives. We never even said goodbye to the good ship Charles Price. So not a while I'm the wheelsman, will the Hoggard seek deep water? The sirens of Lake Huron wish to taste another cruise. Our plates are bent by gouging waves as we face the cruel nor'easter. I'll beach her at point, Edward, and that's all that I will do. Regina joined us in the gale. We saw her plow the seas. I told the captain it looks like we may have some company. I saw her lights before me. Then in an instant she was gone. Her captain proud and sailors brave Will never see the morn So not while I'm the wheelsman Will the hog good seek deep water The sirens of Lake Huron Wish to taste another cruise Our plates are bent by gouging waves as we face the cruel Nor'easter. I'll beach her at Point Edward, and that's all that I will do. Isaac Scott, the last we saw on Sunday afternoon. The winds of fury mounted up, her death was coming soon. Go out to deeper water, was the captain's cry. He said, I'll chart the course and we'll brave this storm But the wheelsman said, not I No, not while I'm the wheelsman Will the Hawgood seek deep water The sirens of Lake Huron wish to taste another cruise Our plates are bent by gouging waves as we face the crew nor'easter. I'll beach her at point, Edward, and that's all that I will.
0: Hey, it's Rick Mixter. With a quick reminder, you can always find Dan Hall's amazing music online at danhall.com. The 1913 Storm original half-hour show I did for WNEM is on YouTube. You can find the link at lakefury.com. Shop around there too, you'll find all of my DVDs for sale, as well as my book called The Wheelsman. You'll also find the DVD called Final Run, a full hour dedicated to the great storms of 1913, 1940 the Armistice Day Storm, and Black Friday on Lake Erie. Shipwreckpodcast.com has more stories to listen to and a calendar of all my appearances. We'll see you on the tour.